James chapter 2. It's up on the screen there. If you have one of the blue Bibles like I have as you walked in, that's on page 978. Um, and I was thinking about it this week. We've been going through the books of uh, James and Jude, both half-brothers of Jesus. And I don't know if it's been mentioned. Maybe I, I missed it. But uh, it's not lost on me that anytime we gather, that there's people in this room that maybe have never put their faith in Christ. And uh, there might be a whole myriad of reasons, a myriad of barriers as to why that might be. But I don't think there are two better apologetics that we get in the New Testament for Jesus being who he said he is than Jude and James, his brothers. Because people will oftentimes die for a philosophy that they want to be true, but nobody dies for something that they know is factually false. And think about James and Jude, both half-brothers of Jesus that did not believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry, but when their brother died and rose again, and they witnessed that, both Jude and James go to the grave being martyred for the very faith that they profess in their brother Jesus. And so I don't know that we have a better authority or better authorities, plural, on what it means to contend for the faith, that's Jude's emphasis, and then live out our faith, which is James' emphasis and the emphasis of the apex of his argument, which I believe we're getting to here in chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. So let's read the text. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith By my deeds, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father, Abraham, considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. You may be seated. This is God's word. I want to start with a question. It's not a trick question. It's just a question. And hopefully the answer is fairly obvious. What produces a transformed and holy life? Well, faith. But I don't know if you're like me, but I don't know if you've ever tried to just think or say your way into a better life. You come in here and maybe it's a Sunday or 
you've listened to podcasts throughout the week or you've been reading a great book and you think if I could just get these ideas deep enough into my heart, then my life would change. Maybe it's a sermon on Sunday morning and by Monday you wake up with new resolve. I'm going to live this out and by Tuesday this shame sets in because nothing really has changed. And you wonder to yourself, well, am I not thinking hard enough? Am I not smart enough? Maybe I didn't listen to the right podcast on parenting and that's why I just yelled at my kids. (laughs) Maybe I haven't read the right books about what it means to be a Christian. Maybe I should go to seminary. See, we live in a world that says, I think, therefore, I am. But when that begins to bleed into our Christian psyche, we are tempted to think that the way we change our lives and the world around us is just by thinking and saying the right things. And then this word faith just becomes this set of beliefs, this set of doctrines that we keep in our heads, but this will never change us. It will never change the world because we are not what we think. In fact, I think philosopher James K.A. Smith is right when he says we are, in fact, what we love. What you love is what you will obey in your life. What you love is who you will become in your life. And I think this James, the one that wrote this book that's inspired by God, would actually agree. Faith is all about what we love. It's what we obey. It's what we trust in life. And here's James' point. Faith is not simply what we put into our minds. It's what we walk out with our lives. And faith is more than that. It's trust and loyalty to God, saturated in love and producing action. Maybe that definition might be helpful for you. Faith is trust. You actually trust God and then you are loyal to him. There's fidelity there. There's a relationship there, but it's saturated in love and only then will it produce action, but it will produce action if there is a genuine relationship there. And as we approach this text, I get this picture in my mind of James and I could just see him holding up a crisp $100 bill and as you hold it up to the light, there's that watermark that you can only see as you hold it up to the light and that's the thing that makes that bill genuine when it comes to the bill of our faith. The watermark is action. The thing that makes it genuine, the thing that proves what is already true about the bill of our faith is that we actually walk it out. We live it. And so to draw a line, to trace a line through the text, I think that James is really fairly simple and his argument works like a funnel downwards to this idea that faith is revealed in action and that is that faith is not shown in what you say. Faith is not even shown in what you believe. But faith is revealed in our actions. Faith is not shown in what you say. There's this famous comedian who has a bit about flying first class, and it's a true bit. And he talks about how he oftentimes flies first class to and from all of his different shows, and this means that he often is the first person that gets on the plane, and so he watches as the moms lug their crying kids to the back of the plane, and the military people get on with their fatigues, and the businessmen sweaty from sitting in the airport lounge all day, get on disgruntled. And he often says, he has the thought, 
that it cost me basically nothing to have this seat. It would mean everything to somebody else if I would give up my seat. And so he goes on to say, I have this thought and I start to feel all warm and fuzzy inside. I feel like this wonderful person, but let me be clear, I've never actually done it. Not even once. Then he goes on to say he actually enjoys the fantasy of thinking about how good of a person he is for even having that thought. How nice am I for thinking about giving up my seat and then totally never doing it? And everyone laughs because we all know that it reveals something that is deeply true about the human condition. We are so easily self-deceived. In fact, this is why James begins where he begins in verse 14 with the ludicrousy of a situation like this, but he takes it a step further. These aren't strangers in your life. There is a brother or sister in the church who has very tangible physical needs. They need clothing and they need food, both of which you have an abundance of and are able to provide, but instead you just say, be warm, be well-fed. And as I was thinking about it this week, it's fairly obvious the translation, right? We're in West Michigan. I'm praying for you. But I'm suspicious <laughs> that we don't even do that. How many times have someone come into our lives and we say, be warm, be well fed. I'm praying for you. And then we don't even do that. We walk away and we forget and we don't even pray. See, this is what James says. He says, what good is that? He draws the correct conclusion. He says, what good is that type of faith in the same way that faith is not accompanied by actions? The faith that is not accompanied by actions is dead. It doesn't even have a pulse. Maybe this story might help illustrate it even further. You know, when... Our kids were super young and getting up multiple times throughout the night to breastfeed. Uh, Mallory, obviously, is the one doing everything at that point because I don't have much to do. But there'd be times where, you know, Mal, I could tell, was really, really tired. And so I'd feel like a great husband. I'd say, Mallory, about to go to bed. If there's anything that I can do to serve you tonight, you just let me know. And... Every once in a while, because she's a strong woman, most of the time she's like, I'm good, I got this. She would say, I'd really appreciate it if you'd get up tonight, you know, when they get up. And I'd be like, yeah, time to pull up my bootstraps, be a good husband. And then 2 a.m. rolls around. And here comes the screams. And I wipe the sleep out of my eyes. And I'm embarrassed to say there was many times where I would wait just long enough that she'd get frustrated enough to get up herself and go into that room. Hey, we all got sin. Don't judge me. <laughs> guys are like, this guy's horrible. <laughs> you've done it. I know you've done it. <laughs> Thank you, babe. She's still with me. Anyway, and just like I can't talk myself into being a good husband. <laughs> Babe, I'm going to get up tonight and then totally not do it. A poor person in our church can't think their way into new clothes. They can't think their way into a warm meal. And you can't think your way into being a Christian. 
And you can't say the right things, and then therefore you're just a Christian. Because James wants you to know that faith is never revealed in simply what comes out of your mouth. That doesn't mean anything. We all know this. That type of faith doesn't even have a pulse. Talk is cheap. But see, talk is not cheap in our culture. Talk is the currency in our language, in the currency in our culture. I mean, we live in the age of the virtue signal, which is all about simply saying things so that you feel virtuous. I mean, we toss yard signs in our front lawn with statements of belief. Look at how righteous I am. We toss things in our Instagram and Facebook bios to show what we believe, how good we are. We toss bumper stickers on our cars that say, be well, stay warm. We live in a world that wants you to believe that I think, therefore I am. But that will never change you and it will never change the world. God doesn't just want your words, he wants your walk. Faith is revealed in action. And then he takes it even a step further and it gets really provocative because James says faith isn't even in what you believe. Don't hear me wrong. Not faith doesn't matter what you, it, it, believing doesn't matter, but faith is never shown in what you believe. Look at verse 19, he goes on. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? There is not a demon in our universe that is an atheist. Every single demon believes in Jesus. And they don't just believe in Jesus. This is a statement of right doctrine. They have right belief in Jesus. He says every demon believes that God is one. That's a true statement. Not only do they believe that God is one, but they shudder in the presence of Jesus because they know exactly who Jesus is. But what's the difference? They don't submit their life to him. They don't love him. They don't really know him. Hear me clearly. I'm not saying that faith is not in what you believe. James is just saying that there is no evidence for your faith simply by what is in your head. You can't show me that your faith actually exists by holding to a system of beliefs. And this means that faith is not just something that we keep in our minds. Your faith is not coming in here on a Sunday morning and checking the box. You are not a Christian because you have a Bible verse in your bio. You are not a Christian because you go to Crossroads Church. And you're not even a Christian if you went to seminary or you know things about the Bible. Satan tempts Jesus with scripture. Right doctrine matters. Orthodoxy matters. But as the theologians would say, there is no orthodoxy without orthopraxy. And that's just a fancy way of saying there is no right thinking apart from right doing. We aren't Orthodox Christians, if we hold to Orthodox beliefs, but don't live out Orthodox lives. 
even the demons believe. And they shudder. They know exactly who Jesus is. Do we? Do we know who he is? And if so, what do we do with it? Because that's the difference between a demon and a Christian. Both believe. One knows them, loves them, submits their life to them, to them. Faith is not shown in what you say. Faith is not even shown in what you believe. And here's where he funnels down his entire argument. Faith is revealed in action. And then he holds up these two beautiful examples of broken, imperfect people with shining faith lived out. Abraham and Rahab. First, let's talk about Abraham. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis 22. That's where we're going to end up with. So Abraham and God have one of the most talked about relationships in all of Scripture, and it begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, right? And God makes this promise to Abraham, through you I'm going to bless the world. And Abraham believes him. He believes him enough to leave his home, leave everything that he's ever known with the promise that God will do, in fact, what he said he will do. And by chapter 15, Abraham is exhausted and weary. And he's honestly a little bit discouraged because years have passed since God promised that this thing will come true. Abraham's getting a little crusty. He's a little old. And so he thinks, as any normal human being would think, God, where are you? What are you doing? And he takes his fears to God, and he's worried that his servant will end up with his estate instead of a son, which God has promised. And so God just gently takes Abraham, and he leads him outside, and he says, I want you to look at the stars, Abraham. <laughs> you can't even count them. So shall your offspring be. And we don't know if Abraham said it or if he thought it, but he believed it. And the text says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So God goes on and he makes this covenant in the second half of Genesis 15 with Abraham. But here's what's interesting to me between chapter 15 and 21 or 22, which we will get to. Abraham's faith is far from perfect. He botches the whole thing. He takes control of his life back from God, and he impregnates his servant Hagar instead of getting his wife Sarah pregnant because he doesn't believe perfectly. He doesn't trust perfectly. And God remains faithful. He does not abandon Abraham because he has established a relationship with him, a covenant with him. And even though Abraham has broken that relationship, God will never break his promise. And so Abraham keeps walking. And I think it's interesting to stop here also and note that if James's point is for us to pull up our bootstraps and just try really hard to live out the perfect faith, then he wouldn't have pointed to Abraham if this is true of his story. And so while Abraham fails, God remains faithful, and eventually him and Sarah in their old age give birth to a son, Isaac. And I remember holding my 
two daughters when they are born. I mean, it's absolutely euphoric. But I can only imagine the feelings that Abraham and Sarah would have been having as they held that son. God, you did what you said you were going to do. And Abraham's faith and trust and love for God grows and it grows and it grows as their relationship matures. And then we fast forward to Genesis chapter 22, seven chapters down the road from 15. And Abraham is well over 100 years old at this point and God tests their relationship. And God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain that I'll show you. And I think as Christians at times, like we sanitize this narrative, like I just want you to think about what the text just said. Like as a parent, that makes me utterly sick to my stomach. God, you want me to take the son that you just said through whom? The nations will be blessed, and you want me to sacrifice him? Which makes Abraham's obedience all the more stunning because for three days he picks up and he walks. He gathers the things for sacrifice. He takes Isaac up. And when they get there, he says something that is extremely telling of the type of faith that Abraham says. He says, me and Isaac, we're going to go up and we're going to worship, and then we will come back to you. God asked him to sacrifice Isaac But he tells his servants, don't worry, we're going to go up and worship, and then we're going to come back to you. Which means, Hebrews actually interprets this and says that Abraham believes in a resurrection, that Abraham so believes God and so believes his promise that he knows, at the very least, if I slay my son, God, you will resurrect him because you promised that through him, the nations will be blessed. So he walks, and he walks And he walks. And finally, they go up. They have the wood and all the preparations. And Isaac looks at his dad and realizes the only thing that they don't have is the sacrifice. Dad, where's the sacrifice? And in verse 8, Abraham says, the Lord will provide. Can you imagine your son looking at you and asking that? And so then they finally get there. He binds Isaac. He puts him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reaches out and he grabs the cool blade out of its sheath. And he goes to slay his son. And the Lord stops him. And then we pick up the text in verse 12. And it says this, do not lay a hand on the boy. He said, do not do anything to him because now I know you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by the horns, and he went over, and he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Would you trust God with your most precious possession if he asked you to give it to him? See, this, in fact, may be the one thing holding you back from growing in your faith. 
Think about right now the thing in your life that if you thought you did not have that, it would render your life meaningless and you will find an idol in your life. It's a hard word, but it's a true word. Anything that you withhold from the hand of God in your life is a hindrance to your faith. Because it is one thing other than God alone in which you trust for happiness, fulfillment, purpose, joy, significance, beauty, value. So think about those things right now. What is that? James would say walking out your faith is being willing to hand that to God. And see, this is exactly what he's saying. James takes this event and explains it in verse 22. He says, you see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. Abraham, through decades of belief, walked with God and went through the ups and downs in life and learned to trust him, learned to love him so much so that when the ultimate test came, Abraham was ready to do it. And then James says in verse 24, we are shown to be right by God, by what we do, not by faith alone. Faith is revealed in action. And this isn't the only story that James uses. The contrast is unbelievable. It's kind of shocking who James brings up next. Rahab. Well, if you don't know the story of Rahab, Rahab we learn about in the book of Judges, and it's significant that the first story in a book about God's people conquesting Canaan is the story of a Canaanite woman prostitute who puts her faith in the God of Israel and is saved because of it. And not only that, she's adopted into God's family and she becomes such a significant character that in the genealogy of the lineage of people and the family line of Jesus in Matthew's gospel were given dozens of names. Every single one of them are men save four and one of the women, Rahab. A prostitute from Canaan, the very people that were enemies of God, the people that hated the God of Israel. And see, I had to work this out in between services because I said that there is a contrast, but only to us is there a contrast between Abraham, the faithful Jew, and Rahab, the faithful Canaanite prostitute because we look at their exterior, but God looks into their life and he points to both of them back to back and he says, look at their faith. And you know what this tells me? It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you put your faith in the Lord of heaven and earth, you will be saved. It doesn't matter if you're a patriarch of the entire nation of Israel or the scarlet letter of the whole town, a prostitute woman from Canaan. God can and will use your life if you give him your actions, if you show him your faith. And I don't know what baggage you carry into this room, the sin in your life that you think defines you, but it doesn't if you put your faith in Christ. Because there was no one more honorable, in my opinion, than Abraham. At least from the biblical narrative perspective. But think about Rahab. What does she have to offer? 
She's a prostitute from Canaan. James, the good Jew that he is, lifts up those two and puts them back to back and says, you want faith that works? Look at Rahab. Look at Abraham. See, we are so quick to draw lines, and this is what James is all about, of insiders and outsiders based on what we wear, how much we have, the money that we've accrued in our life, based off of the theological buckets that we place our beliefs into. But God is no, not so quick to draw those lines. He looks deep inside the heart, and he sees the faith revealed in action. And that's why James says over and over again, show me, show me, show me your faith. And at this point, if you know the rest of the New Testament, I think the obvious question that we might be wrestling with, that maybe even rubbed you the wrong way when we first read it, is from verse 24. Is this something opposite of the other biblical writers? We are shown to be right with God. We are righteous by what we do, not by faith alone. What is this? I actually don't think he's saying anything that's different than literally every other biblical writer, especially in the New Testament. Think about Peter. Live such good lives among the pagans that they may see what? Your good works and glorify God in heaven because of them. Or how about the Apostle John? The one who says he remains in him must walk as Jesus walked. Or what about Paul? Walk by faith, not by sight. Or walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Or even Jesus himself, Matthew 5, in the same way, let your light shine among others so that they may see your what? Good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Or Matthew 7, they will recognize you by your fruit. Every good tree produces good fruit. James is not the anomaly. He's not saying anything that is contrary to the rest of Scripture. In fact, I only think that he is challenging the way that we actually talk about this word, faith. Abraham was considered righteous years before he was asked to sacrifice Isaac. So this is not works, therefore you are saved. This is you are saved, therefore works. Or as Dallas Willard says, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning because earning is an attitude towards life, but effort is action. God wants every ounce of your effort. But if you start putting in that effort and then you think that it's earned you something, you are deceived. God has saved you. In fact, this is why James begins the passage by saying, can that faith save? Hence, implying you need saving. So your works don't save you. Walk out your faith. You want your life to change, submit your will to God. But you can't do this by just pulling up your bootstraps, which is why James gives us this little caveat in verse 23. And the text tells us, that Abraham was even called God's friend. Think about that. The decision to 
sacrifice Isaac on the altar was not divine child abuse or coercion from God. It was rooted in Abraham's friendship with God. Over the years, he had walked and walked and walked with God so much so that his friendship or his faith had turned into full-blown friendship with God. And here's what I think. If faith is trust and loyalty, saturated in love and producing action, isn't that just a good definition for the best of our friendships in our lives? Faith is friendship. Of course, it's much more than that, but it's certainly not an ounce less than that. And we all know the different levels of friendship in our lives, right? We live in the superficial world of friendships. And I like to think of our different levels of friendship with the illustration of a house. Like there's people that are friends in your life that like you'd let them into the you know, living room, but you wouldn't dare let them into the back bedroom so they can't see that mess, right? There's friends you'd let into the basement, maybe not even the living room. Then there's friends that you let throughout the rest of your house. But I actually think there's one place that shows the apex of your intimacy of your friendship. And this is what I call friends that have refrigerator privileges. <laughs> we all know these friends, right? Like the fridge is more intimate than my bedroom in some cases. I don't want you to see what I got in there. And I have friends in my life who come over to my house and they'll go right into my fridge. And I'm not even, not even offended. I'm overjoyed because they know that they have access to everything in my life. So it's just an action that exemplifies something that is true of our relationship, which is that there are no boundaries to my house. Everything that I have is yours. And if we want to live lives of faith with God, he's got to get some refrigerator privileges in our lives. Everything has to be his. Nothing can be off limits. And I can guarantee you that the things that are off limits for God in your life are the things that are holding you back in your faith. Those are the very things that if you would sacrifice, if you would give him, would actually grow your faith. But we are so afraid of being that vulnerable to God. And so we don't develop a deep friendship with God. Does God have refrigerator privileges in your life? Does he have access to everything? He already knows it all. Is there anything in your life that you're withholding from him? And if so, what is it? And if you can identify what it is, how can you give it to him? See, real faith grows when God takes occupancy of more and more of your life because just as you grow in your friendships when you trust your friends with more of your life, so you will grow with God when you do the same. And see, this goes so far beyond the transactional gospel that so many of us have been taught by which God simply dies for our sins and then we just hold on to that belief with dear life until this big bad world dissolves. But there is no friendship. There is no true relationship. And James would say that faith is useless. It cannot save. It's dead. But the faith that has action, a faith that is friendship, is a faith that can save, is good 
for everything is useful and complete and full of life. And sadly, I've witnessed people in my life who had disintegrating or dying faith. And one thing in general that I've noticed is that their faith is not failing because they didn't go to seminary or they don't know the right things. It's because they don't really know God like a friend. And as a result, their roots have not gone gone deep in God. So amidst the pressures to conform to the world, they say, God, I know about you, but I don't know you. Therefore, I don't want you anymore. And they walk away. And in James 4, James actually explains this. He says, don't you know that friendship, he uses the word friendship with the world, is enmity with God. There is no A, B, and C. There's only A and B. You're either friends of the world or friends of Christ, but you can't be both, and there is no third option. Is God your friend? See, he wants in on your life. He wants to be more than that, of course, but not less than that, because the more you become friends with God, the more you will give him your life, the more you obey him, and because of Jesus and Abraham even, for that matter, we can always know that as it pertains to our friendship with God, he will always outdo your effort and your sacrifice in this relationship. In fact, he tells us the same in John chapter 15. Look at this. He says this, when you obey me, this is Jesus speaking, when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. Just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way that I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command, I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends. Since I have told you everything the Father told me, you didn't choose me, I chose you and appointed you to go and live out your faith that works, produce abundant fruit. See, the fruit in our lives only comes when the tree The the tree that is our faith has grown its roots deep into friendship with God because it is one thing for us to call God our friend, but it is an entirely different thing for God to say, you are my friend. Because God looks at Abraham and he says, now I know that you love me because you have not withheld your son, your only son, whom you love from me so that we can look at God and say, now we know, Lord, that you love us because you have not withheld your son, your only son, whom you love from us. There is no greater love than this, that one, the one, Jesus, would lay down his life for his friends. But unlike our world where you can just click a button and now you're friends with somebody and you can see information, Jesus actually does his love. He lives it out. 
See, this faith is not an abstract, impersonal concept to get in our heads. It's a walk through life with a good friend. And this means that when we surrender our will to God, we're not learning to walk out our faith by ourselves. We're never alone because we've been called friends of God. He walks with us as we're learning to walk out our faith. And I know for some of us, it's like hard to believe because we live with wounds from maybe our childhood or, or, or sports teams or our careers by which we live in this cloud of shame that God couldn't possibly call me his friend. Yes, he's my Lord, but he's really just disappointed in me. He's really just mad at me. No, God has called you his friends if you have put your faith in him. And I love what J.C. Ryle has to say about friendship. He says this, this world is full of sorrow because it is full of sin. It is a dark place. It is a lonely place. It is a disappointing place. The brightest sunbeam in it is a friend because friends half our sorrows but double our joys. And that's what faith looks like when we walk in faith with Jesus. Every joy in our life explodes into double the size it would otherwise be, and every sorrow in our life is subtracted into half of what it would otherwise be because Jesus is right there walking with us. You want your life to change? Walk out your faith. Don't just tell God you love him. Show God you love him because after all, we are what we love. Do you love him? Maybe the first step, first action that we should all be taking today is if we have anything in our lives that's separating us from deeper intimacy with God. No, unity with God. We gotta come up to these bowls and repent and wash in the waters of mikvah. Not because we're washing ourselves, but because that represents the living water as we bury our sin and remind ourselves that we have been washed by Jesus so that we can walk bold faith out into our world. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. No, show me, show me your faith by your deeds. Lord, help us to do this. Help us to be the type of people that walk what we talk, that live and breathe what we say we believe. Give us by your power and by your spirit the ability to trust you with more and more of our lives and help us, Father, to grow 
in deeper unity with you and your son for your sake and your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.